My name is Michael Connor. I'm artistic director of Rising. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here tonight for the launch of Do Not Research 2021-2022. A book that I hope features many of, of your writing. Um, Rhizome is a digital art organization. We were founded in 1996 by an artist named Mark Tribe as an online community. Uh, Mark started in Berlin one summer when he encountered a lot of artists that were starting to work with digital tools in the public internet. And, uh, and since 2003, we've been an affiliate of the New Museum, um, which means we're still an independent organization, but we get to collaborate and use this platform for events like tonight, which is really exciting. So our, our, you know, we're now an older institution, but we have a program that supports new work through commissions, um, and we're returning again to having in-person events, which is really exciting. Um, and we also have an important archive and preservation research department where we add um, new digital works on an ongoing basis and research ways of making sure they last over time. So we have a, a great 45-minute program that that the Do Not Research team has put together tonight. And I will hand it over to Josh Sidorella to take us through that. Rhizome Events Program, before I go, is supported by New York Department of Cultural Affairs, the New York State Council, Council on the Arts, uh, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the legislature. And special thanks for tonight's program to Jacques-Louis Vidal. And I'll turn it over to you, Josh. Thank you, Michael. Oh, do I have, here we are. Hey, gamers, it's good to see you. We've got a very special, very unusual program tonight. There's not two projects like this, so it's very exciting. Yeah, thank you, Rhizome, especially to Michael. Thank you to Jacques and Channel. I believe Jacques, James, maybe are here somewhere in the background. I'll say hi to you if I've missed you before. We've got a really wonderful program tonight where we're going to have a series of readings. Our co-editors for the blog will give an address reading their mission statement, an abbreviated version of it. and. We're here to celebrate a book that is the cumulative creative production of 110 contributors, 143 posts in 11 months. This kind of explosive productivity from a young creative community is, I think, very anomalous in today's era of the internet, where people are atomized, competing with each other, and we've built, uh, I think, a pretty spectacular thing. I'm also joined by Lauren Boyle of DIS. I think for everyone to be more or less on the same page, people encounter Do Not Research as a variety of different projects. So I'm go just going to give maybe a few minutes of introduction for what this project is and what sets it apart, because there are a few different facets. If you're familiar with the name Do Not Research, you were probably following a fucking wild meme account a few years ago uh, that built up a pretty fantastic and unique following. You may also be familiar with the blog. You may now be familiar with the book, uh, a museum-scale exhibition that we mounted in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Thank you to Tony Deschenza, who I believe is unfortunately not able to be here with us tonight. But we, we had, let me see if I know the numbers, 46 artworks by 41 different artists in an exhibition that was two and a half hours drive outside of a major city, and 150 people showed up. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really exciting, it's a really exciting time. Michael gave an incredible intro. One of the things that I've tried to convince the community of, and I think myself in the process, is that there are very humble beginnings for artist projects that then become institutions. And as I, as I narrow down the list of 
who could lend aesthetic expertise to emergent cultural political phenomena on social media, the propagation of memes and radicalization. This sounds like an area for artists to be very involved in and to shape the discourse. So I think that's exactly what we're angling to do. And uh, I think we're doing it too. I think we are, if you look at the citations of where this work is mentioned, I think we can be the definitive source. And I think that is something that artists should be involved in. Uh, we've talked a lot about the significance, the role of cultural institutions and what we think they should be doing. And um, we will become that institution, I, I hope. So I wanted to invite Lauren here this evening because I think in the background, this has been a incredible inspiration for people of my uh, micro generation of post-internet artists. I'm going to paraphrase a tweet here from Carly Busta, who is the co-host of the New Models podcast, that the post-internet generation was both inside yet outside the proper art world, and not being admitted into that legacy canon then propelled those artists to build the new era of cultural institutions. And so, Lauren, thank you for being here. I wonder for the people who are not familiar, because we have ranges of ages 19 to, to, to my age, I, I, I'm ancient by now, um, Disimages was 10 years ago, which is insane. <laughs> Would you tell the younger members of the audience what, there's, there's this magazine, right? It was like an it online was a magazine. There a was website, a website, really. And it was also a magazine. It was a website, it was a magazine, and it used to like crash your computer if you had like a really old MacBook or something because it was built on WordPress and every page was kind of custom coded. It was full of, you know, everything. It had mixes, it had editorials, it had like, you know, like it had essays on, on you know, cuckolding. It had, it had everything, you know, it was like, it was a real mixed bag and, you know, best and worst fashion reviews. It like made like PR girls shake, you know, every season. It was really, really fun. It had this energy that was a kind of like reverse appropriation. You know, the ethos was really just sort of like, this is the, this is the end of the contemporary. This is the end. There's no alternative, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing left. Right. I mean, this is, this is where we were coming from and it was widely misunderstood by a large segment of the culture and art world, whatever. Um, none of that obviously mattered much to us because we were we were so adamant that we were kind of like against hierarchies. We really felt that like whether it was fashion or art or memes, like they're all just byproducts. They're all aesthetic production in a capitalist consumer society. So for us, it was like we were just turn. We were making it obscene, you know. And it wasn't just us, of course. It was a group. Of, it was many artists. A lot of, you know, quote post-internet artists, which I think is just looking back, calling it post-internet. It was like pre-internet. It was like prehistory, you know. It was. It's so weird um, to even call it post-internet, but I now I love it actually. <laughs> yeah, I I think. Maybe I'm recalling a piece, I think it was by Ryan Tricartan, which was, um, in terms of the emergent behaviors and long-tail nicheified subcultures, um, what did, you had a wonderful term for it, evolved lifestyles. Yeah. Yes, and all of these yeah. niche micro-genres of, I mean, now you would call it wave or core or whatever. Uh, I think that this was the map for what I later discovered through politogram work, where people were like, pairing together these A-B combinations of extremely niche political ideologies. And yeah. I, w I had learned that from watching the work that you were doing, that this was part of that process of this ever expansion of genres and consumer identities that are now retrofitted onto a political uh, a persona or identity or, or essentially a personal brand is yeah. what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me throw you... 
This is, this is how I've heard the story, and tell me if I'm wrong. The four of you, the founders of DIS, are seated in a uh, living room in Williamsburg, and this is when you decide to start a website. Is that actually, is that the, be the real beginning of the story? No, there were like 12 of us. Okay, there were 12. Yeah, there was like. But it was, it was just it was an apartment. My, it, was it was a house my party. apartment, and it did start with an email thread, you yes. know, because we use email back then what? to communicate. <laughs> What, what what year is this? Oh, it's um it's two thousand and nine, and um we just had the financial crash, and there was like we were all just like totally like toe up, like out of work on unemployment basically, mm. and it, you know it really definitely felt like this is like this is the end of the future or something. You know, like it was the new it was a new time. It was like Obama Baroque. It was a really weird. There was a real weird sensibility yeah. happening, um, and we wanted to create a magazine. We knew that and. We didn't know if it was going to be print or online right away. That wasn't like a defining characteristic of it. But as we started to kind of start commissioning essays and start writing things and we just looked at, you know, what we were working with and we we're like, well, this is, has to be online. Like everything is about the Internet, you know, um, everything that we're, we're making here relates to that. And, you know, back then it was like all the print magazines were just like they were like shutter, like their website was just like a link to like someone to buy an ad for the print magazine you know like that was like that was how long ago this was that's how much this has changed but yeah it was it was a big group that whittled down to seven of us seven even seven is it, a lot seven it's, is a lot and then yeah. seven you know it was survivor i don't know you know <laughs> and not not in the sense that we were like voting anyone yeah. off but you know it's yeah. just sort of like people have lives that are complicated and they go off and they do other things and it was always a kind of rotating cast of characters that we were collaborating with but there were of course there were caretakers you know the people that had the keys to the back end of the website and right. things like that but you know i think about this kind of like crisis of vocabulary and like back then you know we didn't have we didn't have the tools but we also we didn't have the vision or the vocabulary that you do today with do not research to kind of i don't know picture another kind of framework i think collective kind of stuck with us we live in this reality where, you know, language kind of foretells like what something is and how it can kind of be cataloged and, and things like that. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, if it was a different time, it'd just be, we're just all victims of our moment, you know? It's always, like, it's always, yeah, period specific. Like, I yeah. think if you try to recreate the, the, all the formative things that went to DNR, that there was this incredibly visible political force in the form of aesthetic mimetic transmission um, that was not commented on by legacy institutions to the capacity that I think it should have been. Yeah. And then you have a pandemic on top of it where you get a bunch yeah. of people who are also creative, interested to talk about these Online things in a discord. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's, we have to be very aware of the moments that we're in and what are the possibilities of building things. Um, there was also when you were working, crowdfunding wasn't really available. No. Um, but I think before I get too far ahead, because I part of what I think allowed me to envision that we could do this. Like there's definitely some people here who thought this was a podcast, right? <laughs> and now we're like two years into it and it's definitely no longer a podcast. Uh, but I think what made me think that we could do it is because I saw you do it. Yeah. I saw you go from being a website to then being a real institution. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not an overnight transformation. There's a lot of things that happen in that, in that space. Um, but I, I wonder if you could tell us uh, a little bit of the growing pains uh, for how you managed to make that transition, because we do a lot of uh, uh, a I lot mean, of herding cats, and it's uh, sometimes yeah. it's difficult. Sometimes it's very difficult. No, super hard. I mean, we okay. Where do I even begin? I don't know. You know, there's so much to to touch on. Like, 
What, was the, I, what was the worst, most traumatic part thing, of growing your career? Thing was clo- <laughs> the most traumatic thing was definitely closing Dis Magazine, which sure. I still could like tear up because, but, you know, we had been basically iced out because of Facebook. They ruined us, right. you know, like Facebook, the algorithms changed, like our stuff. I used to go to the websites. You had yeah. to go, di- there was only, di- like every traffic was direct links. Like no one would see it in any feed anymore. And we never kind of like... We never self-censored, so we weren't really, like, going to ever get, like, any kind of, like, backing or anything. It was, you know, it was just never, you know, something that was, like, a money-making organization in a way. Um, So that was, like, a really big, like, hard leap to make. But we made it right after we came back from curating the Berlin Biennale um, in 2016 because it really did feel like like we were slapped in the face and it was a completely different era, you know, like Trump was just elected and we were just like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like, what are we doing? Like, what do we want to keep doing? And I think we wanted to, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd made other, we'd made many platforms over the way. Um, None of them were really particularly driven by any kind of like economic needs because we always had, you know, jobs that we were also doing and things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, that was like, because I think people just thought, oh, like, this is over, you know, because it's like, there's a new magazine. Like, that was, but, you know, the magazine was it, but we were doing, when we have done, like, so much since then, you know? You really, yes. Well, uh, art that um, is, is now, I would describe it as an online institution. It's a yeah. video archive. There's uh, an extraordinary amount of artist videos, and I was very fortunate in yeah. collaboration with Jacob Hurwitz Goodman to produce three of them that we're going to show. I think they're going to be in two museum shows in the next uh, month. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a, this is going to sound silly, but there's young kids in the audience who were not here. They, they were not, they didn't see the world transformed by Facebook. They don't yeah. know the period that you're talking about where you yeah. used to go to websites. They just get it all through the feed. Why did you not just decide to start a YouTube channel? Okay. So we did not start a YouTube channel because we thought that was just like another platform that was going to screw us essentially. So we were like, we're not going to do that. That's, we don't want to be locked into paying Google for ads being in this like thing where like you have to monetize every single video and then, and then everything becomes a talking head and everything has to look the same. You have to just repeat yourself like endlessly. That just like, wasn't, that would not keep our attention, you know? So our strategy was really like, okay, you know, how can we make exactly what we want without catering to some like algorithmic God that we can't control? And we kind of like, we looked at like the different, I don't know, like the markets and things. And we thought like our stuff was already being taught in universities. Like we were already kind of part of a lot of curriculums. And we knew this because teachers were always writing us. Students were always writing us. Like this was obvious. So we kind of were like, you know, there's no one doing video that's like, you know, it's art, but it's like, it's actually, it's a communicating ideas and messages. And it's kind of like low key propaganda and like, you know, we can make stuff and we can sell it to like universities and libraries. And we only have to sell to one person to get a check, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we don't have to, you know, we can actually make something that's like more sustainable and it's the subscription model, you know, but Patreon didn't exist then either. (laughs) So we keep missing these beats, you know, but whatever, (laughs) (laughs) but we didn't do the Patreon thing. We went to a kind of B2B situation where we have universities that subscribe on behalf of all of their students. Um, And I think that was like, you know, it was a good move for us. It's kind of like floated us. And now, you know, 
we continue to make, you know, a lot of shows that also contribute to the, the funding and the production of uh, new work. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, it's been a theme of the conversations we've had a lot in the last year of not having to turn your artistic practice into content. Yeah. And when I hear you talk about cutting like short little minute length trailers and talking heads and like yeah. the snappy editing, it, it kind of, you have this total freedom to publish whatever you want in so far as it like floats the top of the SEO and uh, provokes sensationalism and outrage and all of these weird incentives of building the world's communication network as an advertising platform. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very important for creative practice that has to take place in an institutional context. My next question here is just, help with an exclamation point. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What did you learn along the way? That's, that's the subtext. Well, okay. Did I already say this? Okay. So I really think the best is um, just having that foundation. Like you've already kind of created a a sort of decentralized platform. Like you, you know, do not research will outlive any collective, you know, because of the nodes and the way that it's kind of organized. And I think that like, like had we had a different like language back then with DAOs or web or whatever, you know, we would have right. completely like, cause we had no interest in being this kind of like tight, like secret, you know what I mean? Like, like that wasn't never our thing, but it's sort of just like, you know, respond, like someone has to be responsible for things and like, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it just kind of works out that way. So I think that the best advice I have for anyone starting something that looks like it could involve more than two people, you know, <laughs> would be to kind of try and straighten out that vision for like the, you know, it's going to change and evolve all the time. And that's great. Like you should be as fluid as you can be in terms of where you want to go and not limit yourself to being stuck in a style that you've always been known for, but also organizationally have something that has a kind of um, flexibility, basically. Yeah. You have to be, and I think what, you know, what you're doing, I mean, I already see it, you know, with like the discord is incredible and like the, you know, and with channel now linking up, that's like, that's definitely the future. Sometimes it is really dependent on the tools and yeah. Yeah. We realize that, that through, Patreon, through podcasting, through there's all of these things that come to light that um, you realize like you're a fish in water and and you're just learning that you're wet for the first time. And it's like, oh, I was in a reward system for X and this actually shaped the things that I could make. And I learned certain things when I was in the gallery and then other things on the platforms. And yeah, yeah. Um, I You describe it as being uh, exclusive, but my sense of this, like especially in the era of the uh, the Red Bull show, is that like it was such an inclusive. It yeah, was such no, a no, fun I don't mean thing to be. A part I just mean of. like it's like it's like it's my problem to like like send a newsletter out. You know what I mean? Oh like, yes. yeah, yeah. Who <laughs> has like, to, sh- yeah, yeah. We're not like sharing the work in the right. way that yeah, I think with yeah. a giant Discord or something like that, you can have that kind of dispersal well, that of is, responsibilities. That is true to a and I think that's something that I think is like really cool. No, this was never exclusive. This was the most welcoming place you could find in terms of, you know, atmospheres, I would say. That's what's, yeah, that's what's so, uh, so special about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it was, it was like peak. It was a great moment. And it was, and at that, and, and even in forever, I think people don't really associate me with this. You know, most people, it's pretty anonymous. Like Mm. people don't really... I think, no, I think that's, I think that's, but I don't think people really, people are always like, do you work for them? I was like, that's so cute. Like, (laughs) I wish I had an employee. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we, we tried to do a similar thing where the, 
up until the channel announcement that Do Not Research was known as a blog or a meme account, mm -hmm. but it wasn't associated with uh, the content stream and the podcast. And we tried to very intentionally keep them separate yeah. so that things weren't just under this one um, umbrella. But yeah. it, it becomes, uh, you know, you also have to grow and evolve over time and just uh, deal with the moment that you're in and what opportunities there there are. Yeah, I think we've kind of anticipated the next question here and I don't want to take us going on for too too long because we have uh, a program this evening we're also going to hear from our co-editors of the blog uh, when you have a discord full of I think 1500 people something like that now you okay. there's definitely the capacity to like swarm and crowdsource and get things yeah. but it also does very often come down to myself and Abby and Margot filling out extensive spreadsheets of contact info across seven different platforms and truly maddening labyrinthine organization yes Okay, so maybe the last question. You were responding to a period in the art world where you transitioned from being not just a website, but into an institutional context, into this video platform, mm -hmm. and you felt that there was a thing that was, was missing at the moment. I've tried to respond to a similar thing. Is there, is there any other glaring omission? Like, what is it that the art world needs these new institutions for? Well, to be honest, I mean, we've never really fully engaged or been that interested in the art world from a, for, as a, from a critical perspective mm. or anything, because to us, it's kind of like all the same, you know, it's like going after McDonald's or something. I don't care, you know, like we, whatever. We're more interested in kind of trying to do larger projects now, you know? So, like, we just made this pilot, you know, like everything but the world. And it's kind of, it's a tragic comedy, you know? But it, it works similarly the way that the magazine works. It's just, like, overlapping collaborations. Like, this kind of incredible, exquisite corpse of a, of a project. Um, and I think they're, that's, like, that's a great way to keep working for us, you know? Um, and I think what's missing is probably more communication in terms of like um, mass communication. You know, that's why like so many like artists want to make TV shows now or movies or features mm. or whatever, because the art world is so niche, you know, like your Twitch following is bigger than like, you know, whatever museums like Instagram account or, you know, it's like institutions aren't really like, you know, they don't really cut it. That's yes. Yeah, so I, I, I just, I know you made, I know you I know, have I'm your points get, about here. I'm trying but, to get out of this, but I got to respond. I can't yeah. not respond to this thing because I think what, what we learned through like making stuff like this uh, images, like that was 10 years ago. And now everything looks like that. Yeah. Like the risks that you can take in an institutional context, the way that we know art is important is because it retroactively proves its influence. So this is true. And you know what? The film that we made was funded by an institution and it could never have been made it from any kind of like no A24, no, no, you know, right, like it's right. not the kind of thing that we would have had the freedom to create the way that we wanted to create the carte blanche, that kind of like whatever that we were able to do. So like bigger budgets, maybe like, I don't know, they need more <laughs> money. They need to get people to make bigger, you know, like it is true what you say, yeah. you know, we're in a funny real time experiment too, because now it's happening so rapidly where there are content producers and contributors to the, well, literally the exhibition that we staged last mm -hmm. month that have, audiences sizing in the millions that are pulling directly from like, they literally participate in the reading group. Uh, so we're watching the, the amphitheater and the, the larger audience happen in real time now or at an accelerated pace where before it would take maybe 
two years, three years, five years for advertising to catch up to avant-garde art. And now it's happening like within a season. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, I think of the Balenciaga runway show that, I mean, it's, it's a really insane moment of yeah. just frenzied online I know. activity. I know. But it is, it is true that people engage completely differently within certain spaces, you know? So I guess creating those spaces like remains pretty critical. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, we're trying to create spaces to create cultivate young creatives and and to really hone their practice and yeah. and those are rare spaces to find now. Yeah. yeah. But I love like, you know, I love I love the kind of like decentralized curating that like Simon Denny has done. Um and I guess it's similar to what you did, you know, with your show in a way. More of that would be interesting. Yeah, it was it was literally out of the Discord. So yeah. it was uh we went through the share your work channel. Uh in case this is not explicitly clear to everyone, we literally went through a year of share your work and just tagged the most interesting pieces we saw. And then there's maybe five on top of that that weren't included in the channel, but it's you know, the Discord is the group show, is the exhibition. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's the space in which it's cultivated. So, yeah. and, and that is the audience and the public uh, that it serves. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a great place to introduce our co editors, Abby and Margo. First of all, we want to thank the New Museum and Rhizome for hosting this and for platforming this. We also want to thank Flip Caustic and Tommy Faison for running the Crit Group in our Discord. It's, about as, it's as important as the reading group and the blog that Abby and I ran. It's generated and refined a lot of the work that went into the group show and that brought us here today. So we'd like to thank them. We'd also like to thank everyone who's played any part in this community. We wouldn't be here without them. I, we also want to... Uh, honor and acknowledge the passing of Andrew Thomas, who lost his life last Wednesday. He was a community member, both online and in real life. He was a part of the social media-driven art project Pixel Austerity. He probably would have been here today. So, um, so obviously, a large part of this project is kind of the like organizational, artistic stuff that Josh is talking about. There's also, you know, the political dimension. So it does feel a bit odd to be sitting here because on one level, the two of us are a bit young to be talking about any project worthy of critical retrospection. But on another level, in terms of like online political discourse, we're probably far too old. Largely, both the avant-garde and the rank and file of online political discourse, these 15-year-olds constitute the foot soldiers of this culture war. For most of my life, I belonged to the latter group. I was like 15 or 14 years old and watching Gamergate grow around me as I laughed at what someone said about someone else with like blue hair and pronouns. Um, and just like a year later, as an obscure anonymous leftist boards, watching the culture wars get meta for the first time, you know, watching people debate posting tactics. Part of our project is the recognition that as artists, you know, we are also influencers now, we're content creators. But obviously the ubiquity of social media has made every single person in this room into an influencer, into a content creator. But it was our hope and our kind of implicit bet that artists or especially, you know, critical and rigorous thinkers would have, you know, the best opportunity. We'd be the like, most crucial and skillful and rigorous influencers. We'd be untethered from the mainstream news cycle and its easy dogmatisms. 
Of course, this kind of influencing only goes so far. As is the case with the online right, it's easier to energize an established party and open it up to change than it is to direct it and change to your goals. And now in a time when both parties are increasingly aware of the power of the digital fringes, you're probably more likely to be instrumentalized by the mainstream than you are to influence it. This is one of many reasons I think we're all thankful for the haven of art and the seeming insularity of online communities like this. Uh, projects and communities like DNR open artists up to the influence of each other and the influence of very active audiences. And this shields them from the pressures of you know, shrinking institutions and the demands of the culture war. And I think this book is a really stunning example of what that freedom affords. Um, you know, and our project exists because institutions, the art world, universities, museums, and galleries, and so on, are failing a lot of the people they are supposed to serve. And although we dislike many of the institutions as they are now, sort of slow and enamored with their repetition, bent on amplifying the same vague liberal complaints and tired gestures, we are fighting for a day in which discretion and curation can once again return to the benefit of artists. So it's the fall of 2020 and my undergrad education is falling apart and I'm cruising through Zoom school. I've decided to split my time between my studio practice and preparing for the reading group. Margot and I are fully immersed in what would come to establish itself as a peer-to-peer -peer school for artists suspended over social media. The books we read opened up our political imagination and challenged our self-conception. They offered a name to something I always felt and could never articulate, a sense of capitalist realism, the feeling of defeat and inability to imagine a coherent alternative to capitalism. Why be an artist? And if you do make art, where does it even go? The art world that young students are being trained for simply does not exist. My undergraduate program sensed this, training us on the slide to become artists as social workers. These artists use their flexibility to act as mediators and fundraisers, providing the care otherwise left blank by the state. Much of the capital A art of our time is shy to be itself, subordinated to charity efforts or endless technical novelty. In this moment of institutional failure, artists find themselves in alliance with platforms to popularize and grant visibility and their status as content creators seems a dig at what art can truly be. Platforms are not institutions, their curation not tied to stewardship or any centuries-long conversation of what constitutes a creative work. And in, this, in the world of new media, there is a deep suspicion of any formal training of art. Timelines of influence are lost in the noise-to-signal ratio. This attitude ultimately sides with the weakening of curation and the every man for himself mode of digital art production makes for a landscape where art cannot seem to house or give context to any of what it produces. When we talk about our project as a para-institutional space, it is not because we believe that these projects can only be answered by a fringe community as the direct action focused art collectives competing for the Turner Prize would lead us to believe. It is no replacement for strengthened social democracy. Talking to friend and community member Nate Sloan of Pneumatic Materials, he reminded me that the goal isn't just to disrupt. Rather, we must disrupt in order to end the disruption that is neoliberal capitalism 
the slow dismantling of social programs and a shift into mass privatization. Enter the research aspect. While informing the art practice of the community, it also serves as an early detection of emergent trends that will soon become political currents. Censorship in the mainstream is met with neoliberal institutional rot, which is met with the humanities already under crisis. Seemingly, there is no coherent way forward. Facing this impasse, Do Not Research takes a full dive into the expressions and desires of the very online and the buildup of unique political identities. DNR will build the context to better understand online culture and the space to launch new creative practices for today. Um, so to follow this, we're going to read selections from the first piece in the book called Over-Hyphenated Platform Capitalism Futures. In our reading group, we read uh, Nick Zernicek's Platform Capitalism, which is a book about, like, you know, emergent kind of capitalism where platforms, not only like social media platforms, but sort of industrial and logistical platforms are kind of taking prominence. And, but, um, you know, we encouraged the participants of our reading group to make really over-hyphenated speculative scenarios based on the themes of the book. They adopt the kind of like Landian, like really clunky, overloaded and overwhelming diction of like future compass memes, which are these kinds of like grid-based memes that are it's too long of a trend to explain now, but basically they're these grid-based memes that, um, you know, they, they kind of like overload, they take on a lot of different like contradictory and, um, you know, sort of bizarre terms as a kind of hedge against, you know, the increasing uncertainty of the future. So, um, okay, so we're going to read the ones that Margot wrote to kick us off. WeChat ubiquity post Chinese space mine steel and coal dump that tanks the US economy. <laughs> You're trying to remember the Mandarin word for anxiety as you tell your WeChat-powered BetterHelp chatbot that having to wear shorts and a dust mask on another 50-degree winter day is starting to make you nervous. UN-enforced green tech collaboration spurs non-essential platform shrinkage and retrogression. You're telling your kids about this thing they called Alexa, and they shut you up to tell you that they've been conscripted to scoop trash out of the Pacific Island trash patch, and if they get enough carbon credits, they'll be allowed to have a kid, and also they're non-binary. <laughs> Post-meme green military new deal universalarmy.gov cozy web with optional social media addiction rehab. You're knee-deep sweating in the world's most thickened compost, hands still covered in dust from captured carbon bricks, watching your coworker let his mouth hang open because he saw a bird species that hasn't been in this area in, in decades, and the word soy-facing doesn't even enter your mind. So we're going to invite David up next. Uh, shouts out my boy Emu, aka Courageous Emu. It's like a very beautiful, long, curly hair from Hawaii and has those kind of like eyes that sparkle. Anyways, he wrote this, so I'm, I'm doing it for him. Infinite Iron Dao and Mimbimbian Techno Pastoralism. One, 
Earn carbon coins from the sequestration of your seaweed peat bog are pooled into your community DAO to purchase an old Italian high-energy laser weapon system. Uh, the reviews assure you that this will be operational and send a strong signal to the Amerizone forward operating base 200 kilometers to the southeast. While the hells is being droned in, a negative carbon balance is credited to your DAO. Expected, but alarmingly high for expedited shipping. To offset this carbon in five years, another three square kilometers of peat bogs must be established. With only 0.5 square kilometers of land available for carbon sequestration, your neighbors must be sieged once more. <laughs> no doubt they have already been alerted, the carbon ledger making secrecy and surprise all but impossible. Palantir is pledging to automatically offset 35% of carbon for any purchase of over 20 unguided missiles and will delay posting any transactions for 72 hours. <laughs> Two, decentralized protection from centralized crises where the value of human lives is crashed to zero. Carbon sequestration and salvaging ordinance are the only jobs available. The rich have learned to code and they built the walls. Uh, Grace is up next. This is by Ryan Seffinger. Qualified Warren regulatory mommy state provided OnlyFans credit dickless dim soch Buttigiegism. <laughs> Emperor of America Pete Buttigieg is a fair ruler. After the collapse of the constitutional government in 2025, Empress Warren ascended to the throne as the Democratic Balkanized Nation Committee found her a suitable compromise candidate for placing the remaining Bernie Boogaloo boys. Her reign was short and swift. The Balkanized states of America were a difficult bunch to half-govern. Pockets of DSA chapters in major cities demanded means-tested benefits, lest they seize the local boutique grocery stores. With barely any resources left to dole out, Empress Warren provided discount codes for Amazon. Small pockets of DSA Maoists responded by assassinating Queen Mother Bailey the dog. <laughs> Empress Warren died of heartache. Emperor Buttigieg ascended the throne, knowing what Americans truly needed. One free OnlyFans subscription per household making under 50k a year. <laughs> Desperate citizens, making under 50k a year, finally had access to the service they needed most. Nutty. Tony is up next. Hello. This one's by Tony that is not me, Tony. This other Tony. Hyperlean bipolar venture welfare race to austero state. The lean platforms own little, and if they want to win, they need to own even less. It started with two giants of mail delivery edging out the state post office with their app-based parcel services, undercutting the government by offering new drivers unbeatable bonuses and hemorrhaging money in the process. The two platforms did not employ drivers. They purchased contractors. They did not own cars, distribution centers, or data centers. It turned out that in order to profitably run a lean platform, you need to be the only lean platform. Until that point is reached, these two competitors dive further and further into debt, surviving on the occasional venture capital injection. But capital is growing bored of this race, and the cash infusions are getting fewer and further between. 
they need fireworks again, like when Uber Health came on the scene. Today, virtually every former state function is run by one of the two platforms, both wholly unprofitable and owning not a single asset. Think Lyft Transit, Verbo Energy. The infrastructure of the state has become a horse track, and international capital is betting on which platform can spin the plates the longest, while the social, ser social services of the government are turned into various types of delivery apps one by one. Blake is reading this. So I am reading for Eric L. This is post-carbon, eco-extraction, tree-planting, eco-fascist, hyper-normalization. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. Here we go again. It's hyper-normalized eco-collapse in the age of website feudalism. To maintain hegemony, the various platform monopolies in Silicon Valley have emerged with various plans to erase all complicity and the ongoing ecocide of all life on Earth. These recuperative acts are no different from different phases within the prolonged stage of late capitalism, where all decisions by capital ultimately serve as self-preservation and the very lucid anticipation of disaster-triggered resistance to the ever-invasive tendrils of the capitalist profit motive. Greenwashing is the only modus operandi left for remaining power structures. Bezos recently released satellite images of his latest mega plantation of tree monocultures in the Amazonian rainforest called New Amazon. <laughs> An initiative announced in 2024 that would see Amazon's global emissions achieve the label of net zero by 2030 through a pay it forward end of transaction tree planting donation plea to help wipe away consumer guilt in the global worth. The earth is dying. Our earth is dying. You can make a difference today by paying it forward to our future children. Plant a tree today. The most violent abuse of passive voice yet. <laughs> to prepare, Bezos signed a landmark public-private partnership with the incumbent Lula presidency in Brazil that lent huge swaths of Amazon rainforest to Amazon's new Amazon subsidiary in a controversial unlimited ground lease. Amazon-backed Jungaloo death squads and other eco-fascist government contractors begin a 10-year genocidal relocation campaign to remove all remaining indigenous and uncontacted tribes from the new Amazon. Protests are global. State repression comes effortlessly. Meanwhile, in the first world, Metaverse's in-game cryptocurrency announces its new climate coin initiatives offset that as all Central Asian mining farms shift to the regional Kazakh Tesla solar power grid, stock prices for Canadian cobalt and lithium extraction conglomerates go through the roof. Media's newest buzzword is clean extraction. Zuck and Musk co-host SNL <laughs> and announce their new ecoverse. Did you know light bulbs in the metaverse use real green energy? All new clean grid, same simulation, epic. The libs go wild, and the death cult of religiously devout faith and innovation has never seemed stronger. The bubble is about to burst. I think uh, Tate, Tate is up next. It's Tommy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I am reading for West Coast poster Tate. This is rideshare volunteer 
Tyrus Nationalism. In a bid to disrupt the world, FAANG companies turned to borders themselves. Once seen as defining immutable bastions of a state, the techno-capital Google Maps godhead transformed the weakened Westphalian sovereignty of each nation with a few pieces of Memphis design propaganda and the promise of a more accessible future. The federated Twitter states of former Western America joins the Airbnb of Old York in a plan to pioneer the Whataburger syndicalist usement. You are the user, the term which has since replaced citizen. You are at Hunter Biden crack pipe. You currently followed the micronation of Parlorville, a small holdout state which encompasses much of what was Southern Louisiana? Nowadays, your citizenship is determined by your follows. You can change your citizenship in just a few easy clicks, but there's a catch. You need to bring enough oomphy mutuals with you or the blockchain police. Wait, let's back up. The blockchain police are the special body of armed men who belong to the long-ascended Halo Arc-style society, which has formed in space. They, while supposedly not having any administrative control, are under the control of the founders of the platforms which now run the country. Anyways, the blockchain police can and will shadow ban your account, user at Hunter Biden's crack pipe, a death knell for any would-be user should you not comply with their nebulous terms of service, a document which you are not allowed to read and which has to be signed for you at birth. Um, next is Nate reading for Orla, who is a woman. Thank you uh, for that important uh, disclaimer, Tommy. Uh, this is fully liquid baddie ack. <laughs> it goes like this. During the great decentralization wars in which anarcho-crypto, crypto-lib bros united to stop the bastardization of the blockchain by vertical monoliths, the girl boss visibility fighters bided their time in an off-chain, yassified corner of Web3. It was from there that they witnessed the final revolutionary application of social tokens, uh, ultimately destroy corporations and taxes. The GBVF, stunned that they could no longer pursue positions of power with equitable pay, and the thrill of tax evasion were rattled to the core. Achieving their ideological endpoint living their best lives would require far more radical action, indeed. <laughs> Through the ritualistic practice of manifesting, during which they would post their mantra, you have the same hours in the day as Beyonce. <laughs> Over all the now crumbling Web 2 spaces, the path which lay before them became apparent. It was time not to fold in defeat at the hands of decentralization of power, it was time to pursue it until its logical conclusion. It was time to act. 
having gleaned an abundance of raw data from their industrial military apparatus, OnlyFans, GBVFs realized that there was a high percentage overlap between the victorious crypto bros and the classic simp. Following many intense hours of A-B testing and design sprints, the GBVF were ready to roll out their most highly nuanced PSYOP to date, the baddie. <laughs> Using another genius product of their tech division, Whisper App, yes, the Whisper App was a big feminism op, they diffused aesthetic and vernacular updates globally to achieve peak baddieism for all OnlyFans creators. <laughs> <laughs> to lure simps with accumulated wealth into their lair. <laughs> After some baddie-initiated pegging at the Fiat factory, everything was in place. Crypto-hoarding simps enjoying the fruit of their grifting were ripe for getting opt. Oh yes, they were bullish on baddie. <laughs> Only fans accepted crypto as a form of payment, leading to a surge in both capital and insights, increasing the covert grip of the GBVF on society's biggest whales. The more the simps consumed, the more the baddies earned. They became abundant in financial and informational wealth, aka power. They doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on their content output, draining the crypto simps of every last fractal of coin, resulting in the emancipation of women worldwide. Bye, XOXOXO. <laughs> Wait, one, one more line. Fashion historians claim peak baddieism to have been the Cronenberg's crash meets Cybertrunk V12 moment. And now uh, Derek and Kara will be reading their piece. Ours is kind of a pitch style. Um, I'm representing NFT uh, girl bosses and, and feminists. Am I the Vatican? I'm the and Vatican. you're representing the Vatican. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so kind of a horseshoe there. Um, this is pro-life crypto soul preservation for incarnation. <laughs> a joint project of Walton Family Foundation, Palantir Technologies, and the Vatican. Here's our elevator one-liner. New birthfully. Turn your aborted cells into crypto soul NFTs to fund abortions for people who didn't invest in crypto. <laughs> New Birthfully, the centrally decentralized platform based on abortion delivery service powered by the blockchain. Our crypto, the New Birth coin, can be freely used across all major exchange platforms. Uh, even though abortion is illegal in the US, they still happen, usually in unsafe conditions and with no record of the soul. That becomes eternally condemned. Now, there's a new way to afford black market healthcare without a strong crypto portfolio as well as preserve insolment using powerful blockchain technology. Introducing New Birthfully, the centrally decentralized platform-based abortion delivery service powered by the blockchain. By using New Birthfully to facilitate your own abortion, you create a ripple effect for other folks to simultaneously access the healthcare they need, as well as become first-time crypto investors. <laughs> Our crypto, Telios, TLS, can be freely used across all major exchange platforms. Here's how it works. Your ensouled cells will be scanned and used to generate a unique one-of-a-kind animated 3D NFT artwork. <laughs> Each time that NFT is purchased, you'll be generating royalties. 
And a portion of those royalties will go to fund a person who is in need of abortion services. By using the new Birthfully network, their aborted cells will automatically generate another NFT, not only providing them with bodily autonomy, but they'll also be able to use the cryptocurrency generated from their first abortion to fund any future black market healthcare needs. Thank you. Next up is Harris. Hi, I'm Harris. I wrote this one. This is fully automated wetware, crypto, Tommyknocker knocker realism with aesthetic human computer interfacing characteristics. The heroic five tragically perish during a planned escape in the rapidly thickening atmosphere because all the controls for future projections of human networking systems on board went down with the ship human networks were caught in a feedback loop. The internal progression of AI halted the lack of new input from human market value. Massive fiber optic cables, the size of whales, pulsated into a void of infinite production. Automatically farmed, harvested, and processed spirulina was formed into fuels and food. All stored in warehouses without any tangible port of access from outside of the internal AI languages that siloed the production systems. Infinitely sending indecipherable signals in Algaspeak, trademark, in the first three years, 60% of the population perished from lack of access to deployable big milky and penis metabots. Streamers would die while live, praying slash hoping for their AlgaCoin transactions to process, but without full network validation from the nodes on the Heroic 5 ship. AlgaCoin transaction gas began to sludge up the fiber optic worms beneath the earth with corrupting intensities of light. At full saturation of light, a new breed of augmented humanoid creatures began to take advantage of the weak spots generated by the corruption of the cables. New organisms with extreme B vitamin and iron tolerance began to mutate and become attuned to the technofungal vegetative symbiotic network that governed the AlgaCoin economy. These orc-like creatures discovered a backdoor into AlgaSpeak, trademark, where internal messages could be sent by introducing false end quotes in auto-generated speech analysis. With this backdoor, these creatures were able to divine smart contracts directly into the AlgaCoin ledger and make network-wide adjustments as a ghost node. The practice known as knocking relied on these big brain mutants to crack the cryptographic encoding of AlgaSpeak on stream using no Internet of Things tech. Automated implants made the process more difficult, requiring knockers to segment the hashing parts of their consciousness off from their awareness to protect themselves from DDoS attacks by the connected network nodes. As the act spread, those that remained began to worship the oracles at the cult of martyrdom emerged. Ascetic knockers would don the most extreme prostration devices while hacking into Algaspeak as a sign of their devotion to the network and a show of purity of faith. It began with headsets and quickly moved to full head bondage helmets that entrapped the four senses. In a final step out of the new dark ages of full saturation, the most devoted of knockers enveloped themselves in rock in rocks made of dense, iridescent compositions of transistors and sensors. The greatest among them soldered these enclosures directly to the bare metal of their implants, making it possible to survive when removed from the stream of the network. Knockers came to see themselves as batteries in the samsara of the alga chain, choosing to be doomed to the material plane until the final soul mutates and can see itself's true nature as a validator node in the universal technofungal chain. Thanks, everybody. We're a little bit over time, so I think we'll break for books and shirts and everything. Thank you for coming. This has been excellent.
Greetings, you Netflix one. 